And would you turn with me uh, this morning in your copy of God's Word to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, you should find a hardback Bible somewhere nearby in one of the seatbacks in front of you. If you're relatively new to the Scriptures, you may be helped to know that the portion of God's Word we're looking at this morning, you'll find on page 924 in that hardback Bible. Colossians chapter 1. We're considering this morning verses 24 through 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray and let's ask that God would be faithful to his promise that he would help us to hear and understand his word. Heavenly Father, we pray with the psalmist that you would Open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law. Father, we pray that you would, in doing so, incline our hearts to your testimonies. Father, we pray that in doing so, you would unite our hearts to fear your name. And Lord, in that uniting, that you would satisfy us with yourself learning the godly contentment that we find resting in you, we pray. Help us to these ends. Help us as we hear your word. And help me, your servant, to be faithful in the ministry of it, we pray. Amen. Amen. One of the more helpful things we could do to enrich our biblical understanding and our love for the gospel is to read Christian biographies. And... More specifically, especially, the biography of Christian missionaries. Have you ever read of John Payton? The autobiography of his account of how God used him to bring the gospel to the cannibalistic tribes of what is modern-day Vanuatu. Or maybe you've read of William Carey laboring for decades, persevering for gospel ministry in India. My plan this summer on vacation is to read of Adoniram Judson and his ministry in bringing the gospel and his faithful labors to Burma. What I find striking in reading through all of these accounts and others of faithful saints of bringing the gospel to the nations is this unavoidable theme of suffering for the gospel. In each of those accounts and others, you will find not only the faithfulness of God to bring 
the good word of Christ to the nations, but the faithfulness of God to do so most often through suffering for the gospel. As you read through these biographies and autobiographies, you find for many that saying yes to missions is saying goodbye to parents, brothers, sisters, knowing that most likely they would not see them this side of glory again. Added to that loss, for many, gospel labors also brought the death of wives, the death of children, the death of fellow laborers that they planned to spend years, if not decades, laboring beside only to end up digging graves and putting crosses before them. For many, there is a testimony of years of faithful labor with no visible fruit other than the fruit of persecution, beatings, ridicule, financial ruin, loss of translated manuscripts, and absolute isolation. I think for us in our day, reading of such account, this This bond between gospel labors and gospel sufferings, it it jumps out at the pages uh, of, of the books that we're reading. Particularly because we live in a context where gospel labors are so often detached from and even antithetical to gospel suffering. We know something of laboring for the gospel and desiring to share the good news with friends or co-workers But how often do we know anything of the sort of suffering and loss that we read of in these accounts? And while we may be the first to rebuke the lies of the prosperity gospel, the poison of such teaching, it still often leaches into our water supply. Because certainly we would be the first to rebuke the idea of some sort of gospel labors that entitles us to fly upon private jets in between our glorious mansions that have been built upon the backs of widows donating their social security. Certainly we see the evil in that. But have you noticed at the same time how the expectation of comfort and the surprise of suffering in our own lives overtakes us? What are we saying? that there is actually some prosperity that we are expecting in being followers of Christ. There is some level of comfort that we are owed, is there not? Could it be that the context of our comfort and the avoidance of difficulty is out of step with much of historical Christianity? Okay, if that's true, then how ought we rightly think about faithfully following Christ and enduring suffering for Christ? I think alongside the testimony of so many countless faithful Christian missionaries, you have this account of the Apostle Paul, who could say to the church, to the Colossians, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. How does he get there? I think the portion of text that's before us this morning is not only a declarative statement of, the, of gospel labors and gospel suffering, but it gives to us the underneath of why that statement is not only true, but it ought to be ordinary in our lives. 
I think the argument of the, of the portion of what Paul's getting at is this, is that the glorious news of Christ is so astounding that it is to be proclaimed to all the peoples with all diligence, even if it means agonizing suffering and affliction. The news is so good that it must be said everywhere, even in all circumstances. What does Paul do? Well, in this section, that he speaks of the ministry that he's been given. He speaks of a mystery that's been revealed. And then he makes certain that we are clear about the message to be proclaimed. Look back at verse 24, where Paul speaks about this ministry that he's been given. Where he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. If you remember back in verse 23, Paul makes mention of his being made a minister and proclaiming the gospel. And so then in verse 24, he elaborates further, and he essentially says, now, about this point, I want to elaborate. The whole gospel and ministry thing. He wants us to know it's a ministry of suffering and a ministry of stewardship. Look at what he says about suffering. Do you see, there in the text, the direct link between Paul's service for the sake of the church and his suffering for the church? It's intentional. In fact, if you read through the book of Acts... The subsequent epistles, you find that his sufferings for the sake of the gospel are quite numerous, aren't they? At one point in a letter to the church at Corinth, he mentions his labors, imprisonments, beatings, not just beatings, but beatings to the point of death. He goes on further and he talks about how this ministry, it's often put him in danger. And then he goes off on all these dangers. He mentions the dangers that come by just rivers, no doubt having to cross, robbers, the dangers that come with being in the city. There's dangers that are unique to the wilderness. There's dangers unique to the sea. He mentions the dangers of of false professors. He talks about insomnia, hunger, and thirst. And he says, on top of all that, the daily pressure that comes upon me for the body of Christ, for the church. And so as he writes to these faithful saints in Colossae, he mentions his joyful suffering for their sake. This is a ministry of suffering. But keep in mind, Paul did not establish the church at Colossae. He had not yet even visited these saints. Epaphras, their pastor, brought word back to him. And yet Paul writes here, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. This is our clue. I believe that Paul is thinking more of his unique office as an apostle and the apostolic office of apostle being the foundation for the church. Ephesians is a helpful parallel, almost commentary at some points upon the book of Colossians. And Ephesians 2, verse 19, the same apostle, Paul says, The house of God, which is the church, being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Why do I bring this up? 
because I think this is especially important when we consider the difficult statement of what Paul says about filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Certainly. Paul cannot mean that there was some insufficiency in Christ's atoning work upon the cross to which some person could now make an addition. Christ got us 90% of the way in regards to our atonement, but have no fear, I'm here to close the gap. You can't read your Bible and come to that conclusion because Paul is emphatic that that is most certainly not at all the Christian gospel. In fact, he's going to go after false teachers and Colossae who are trying to say such a thing, and he's going to shut it down and say, no, Christ is sufficient and supreme, so he have preeminence over all things. So what is Paul saying when he says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction? While the atoning work of reconciliation was accomplished fully by Christ, the immediate ministry of bringing the announcement of that good news beyond Jerusalem, beyond Judea, beyond Samaria, to the ends of the earth, was not yet complete at the moment of Christ's resurrection and ascension. There's more to the story. And the more to the story is that Christ has apostles, and he has delegated them apostolic authority. And by his own spirit, he has given to them what the Father would reveal to them to bring the good news of the gospel, not only in its definitive form, but to the places to which it ought to go. Paul's completion of the Messiah's suffering for your sake, and as he says, on behalf of the body, which is the church, consists in the fact that Paul, chosen by God, is to bring this message of reconciliation to the Gentiles, non-Jews, for their great benefit. So what he's saying it was that it was a ministry that did not occur through the earthly ministry of Christ, though it is most certainly overseen and empowered by Christ sending his people into the nations. Read through the book of Acts and note how much of Paul's suffering was not at the hands of hateful Gentiles, but hateful Judaizers, livid over the idea of Gentile inclusion. How many riots were started when Paul is just simply telling the message of the scripture, and then he says Gentiles, and it goes bananas. And most relevant, as he talks about his suffering, is his present imprisonment in Rome, where he writes this letter to the faithful saints at Colossae. When he says, I'm suffering, and it's my joy to suffer for you, I think he has everything in mind with what I'm doing, and who I am, my unique apostleship, the fact that I'm in prison for this good news, The fact that I've been commissioned by the risen Christ to be the apostle to the Gentiles, I'm gladly doing this for you. I gladly suffer for your sake. These afflictions are for the sake of Christ's church, and as we'll see, has everything to do with Christ being proclaimed to all the nations. It's a ministry of suffering, but he also says it's a ministry of stewardship. Paul, he says, became a servant because he'd been commissioned as a steward. To speak of a stewardship is essentially here in this language to speak of a household, to speak of household management. 
one who manages the affairs of the household for the owner. And and the church in Scripture is, is God's family. And God is called the master of the house. And the Father has set His Son to be the ultimate heir and authority over His house. And God the Son has ruled and delegated to order His house by establishing apostles and prophets, pastors, teachers, as He fit, sees fit according to His good design. And also, He places His members of His body according to His good and wise purposes in His church for the building up of the church in love. So Paul sees his preaching and his apostolic ministry to be a part of of filling out God's plan here. He saw himself not as a sovereign, but as a steward. What he had been given was not for him, but he says, it's for you. It's been given to me for you. And so this image of of stewardship, it's it's actually very essential and very important if we're going to understand our responsibility, brothers and sisters, in this possessing of the gospel ourselves. We who were formerly hostile, alienated, Paul's language, who've now been reconciled to God through the death of Christ, His blood on the cross, we ought to be absolutely overcome by the news that Christ presents us holy and blameless and above reproach to the Father, as Paul has just said. But as followers of Christ and as beneficiaries of the gospel, we also see ourselves, like Paul, as stewards of this good news. We have been given something that's for others. It's been handed to me to give to you. I think that's why we pray nearly weekly in our corporate prayer meeting for evangelistic opportunities. And if you've been attending, you've heard how God answers those prayers. He's opening doors, giving members boldness, giving opportunities to speak of Christ, seeing fruit, and we continue to pray. We pray for laborers to be sent out into the harvest, just as Christ instructed. We pray for the establishing and strengthening of churches in our state, in our country, and around the globe, all because of what? Because of this principle of stewardship. What we have been given is not ours to hoard. It's ours to give. The ministry given, he goes on to speak of the mystery revealed. Look at the end of verse 25. He just says, it was given to me for you, comma, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, anytime an unfamiliar subject, or we pick up writing that's removed from our immediate context, it's very wise to identify and then define terms. It's just a, it's an elementary, ground-level practice that you don't assume the words that you're reading mean what you think they mean just because you use them a certain way. What if it was spoken in a different context? What if it was spoken in a different time period? 
how often do the very same words end up meaning something a little bit different or a lot of bit different? Understanding what those terms are and what they mean is absolutely essential. And we hear this word mystery. And we may attempt to impose our current cultural understanding of what we think that word means. Marching off in a direction, assuming what Paul means. If you did so, you might begin to think of all the Agatha Christie books that you've read over the years and wonder, okay, how does this apply to Paul's teaching? Is that really what he has in mind here? What does he mean when he talks about a mystery? Well, he says a couple of things. He said, number one, it's a mystery that's been hidden to, make, to be made known. When Paul speaks of a mystery, he's not thinking of a secret. He's not thinking of a whodunit novel. He's not thinking of something that was completely unknown, in the dark, the complete plot twist, that, like, I never thought it was them. I never saw that happening. That's more of our current cultural understanding of mystery being laid upon the biblical framework for mystery. In the Bible, when this word mystery is used, and it's used some 28 times in our New Testament, it has more to do with something that's partially understood, but then is made fully known. It's something that's kind of seed-like and then becomes full-grown tree. In almost all of the 28 uses in the New Testament, this mystery points to two realities. One, that Old Testament prophecy was just the beginning of fulfillment. And two, the fulfillment is done so in an unexpected way from the New Testament vantage point. Do you understand the distinction? It's hinted at, you see it, but then how it actually comes to fruition, it's not like, well, that was totally out of left field, but, well, I didn't think it was going to be fulfilled that way. Uh, take the resurrection. Resurrection promised in the Old Testament. Yet why are the disciples dumbfounded when he literally tells them, I'm going to die, and three days later, rise again? Because the seed form of what they knew to be true was not at all what they were imagining in the fulfillment of it. It's something that's known, but it has to be made fully known. Paul says this is a mystery that's been hidden to be made known. There's a mystery that has been partially known, but not fully known. It's been given to me as a stewardship to make it known. That is what I am doing. This great reality, this plan that has always been in the works... Though hidden in the shadows for ages, it's now revealed to the saints. It's revealed to God's people. Okay, what is the substance of this revealed mystery? Well, there's something in the way in which Jews and Gentiles relate to each other in the New Testament that's unlike the way they related in the Old Testament. And when we examine Colossians 1, 26 through 27... In the light of Ephesians 3, we get a bit more explanation. Meaning, what's implied in 127, Christ in you, Gentiles, is explicit in Ephesians 3.6. The Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the amplified version. That's the mystery. 
Christ and you, Gentiles. And what does that mean? Fellow heirs. How? Same means. Christ. Through Christ. So the mystery is not essentially that two groups are made one in covenant, though that is true. The mystery, he says, is that the means by which that is accomplished is in Christ. Meaning, the way that sinners are reconciled to God is the same way, regardless if they are of Israel or the surrounding nations. One way, the same way. The mystery is Christ in you Gentiles. Gentiles become the people of God through faith in Christ, who is the fulfillment of Israel. They are so without having to themselves take upon themselves the various national and ceremonial laws formally required in the Old Covenant. That's why riots start. That's why people go bananas in the context of the gospel being preached in Jerusalem in a Jewish context. Good news, salvation for all the earth. And all the Jews said, Amen. And it comes by Christ. Circumcision is no longer. That's it. We expect the world to be saved, but to be saved as Jews. And Paul says, through Christ. That is the mystery. Brothers and sisters, we cannot grasp the jaw-dropping, astounding revelation of what that is fully not growing up in Hebrew homes, hearing the Hebrew scriptures, the promises, the oracles given to us by God, the covenants, all ours, and then to hear this mystery is actually Christ in you, Gentiles. It was astounding. To put it plainly, Gentiles become the true Israel without taking on the national markers of Israel. That's covenant theology. Or the Bible. Which leads us to the next point about this mystery. It's a mystery that is the hope for all the nations. God has clearly only had one plan in history, and it's played out exactly according to his design. And the plan that God has been working is to bring about all things in perfect unity through Christ. The full and final plan of God is to bless every nation, tribe, tongue, and people through a Jewish Messiah. But the unexpected revelation is that this Jewish Messiah ransoms a global people that will not be defined by Jewish ancestry or the civil and ceremonial laws of the Jewish people. As we trace the various covenants of Scripture through their God-ordained purpose and trajectory, we find that the kingdom of Israel and its covenants were essentially the scaffolding around the kingdom of Christ and what is known as the new covenant in our Bibles, meaning this. The purpose of the old covenant, Abraham, Moses, David, the purpose of the old covenant was to bring about the substance of the new covenant, which has everything to do with Christ saving his people out of every nation. 
Paul says to the Colossian church, the substance of this mystery, it's actually Christ in you. For the message is not limited to the Jews alone, for the riches of his glory is to be spread around. It's to be made made known among all the nations, all the peoples. So the hope of all the earth is this hope of glory that Paul speaks about. The riches of this glory that were once hidden are now being made known. They're now manifest. And it's good news for all the people. And friend, if you're here wondering about what it means to be a Christian, let me just say this is good news for you as well. This means you do not have to travel to a particular city. It means you do not have to pilgrimage to a localized temple. Christ, the eternal God, taken on flesh, and through his once and for all sacrifice, has made a way for all sinners in every nation to be reconciled to him. We come to Christ by faith because of it. We hear and respond to his word, believing that our sin is so great, but that his sacrifice is sufficient to atone for sins. This is wonderfully good news, that we don't have to say we are taking reservations for a trip that we are going to pilgrimage thousands of miles away so that we can find peace, so that we can find comfort. We gather, just like we do this morning, because we've heard of this good news, and we respond by faith, recognizing that Christ is the cornerstone. He's actually building a new temple, the temple of the living God, fitting it together with living stones, which are Christians who actually serve as servants to one another, to rule and to tend, to guard and to keep, and to testify to the watching world of this good news by faith through grace. And because of this particular mystery, there is this constant pull upon the church to take the gospel beyond its its present working. Just like the very strong rip currents that you'll often find in the ocean shore. The constant pull of the gospel is to take the word of God further out. It's an undeniable tug. It is an ever-present pull. Because where the gospel is bearing fruit among God's people, God's people are compelled to see that same gospel taken outward. To send it out further. The trajectory, friends, of redemptive history, it, it, is, it is broader, not narrower. It is going outward, not circling the wagons, becoming isolated and insular and building these fortressed communities. Look at the trajectory of redemptive history. From a garden to a man to a tribe, to a nation, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and language. All creation was made through him and for him. Therefore, all creation must know it exists for him. It's been rightfully written that missions exist because worship doesn't. Very helpful distillation. 
Missions exist because the worship of God does not exist. Therefore, we go. We see ourselves as stewards. So the hope of all the nations is the hope of the great glory of Christ among all the nations. Okay, I see this. The message made fully known, be taken further out. What do we do? What do we actually say? The message proclaimed. Let's end with this, verse 28. Him we proclaim. Warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. How many times have you been absolutely defeated, hung your head, when your sports team, your sales team, even your own personal ambitions crashed and burned? The plan was drawn up, written out, prepared with excellent precision. The execution of the plan was a complete disaster. And that's when you hang your head and you say, what happened? We knew the plan. We just absolutely made a hash of carrying it out. Meaning, we could be absolutely convinced that the good news of the gospel is the hope of the nations, but make an absolute hash of it when we fail to deliver the, the actual message. Convinced of the plan, but making a wreck of it when it comes to the actual message. What is the message, Paul? What is this that we are proclaiming to the nations? He says, the message is Christ. Now, Paul's not messing around here. The mystery revealed is Christ, and the message we proclaim, he says, is Christ. So let's not get cute here, thinking that we need to preach something different than what the world actually needs. If Christ is the hope of glory, the mystery hidden for ages yet now revealed, and if Christ is the one who reconciles sinners to the blood of his cross, then for the love of God, preach Christ. Christ is the riches of the gospel and the riches of all divine perfection. It's in the face of Christ that the glory of God is revealed. All the works of creation and providence are all in Christ, for he holds all things together, and in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. The grace of the gospel reveals that this Christ, who was rich, yet became poor for the sake of sinners. All the promises of God find their fulfillment in Christ He is the means of pardon, the means of peace. He's the riches and glory of all the treasures in heaven are bound up in him. Christ is the glory of the gospel. He's the author, the preacher, the subject, the power of the gospel. He's the only begotten of the Father. He's the perfect mediator between God and man. The glory of God's wisdom and power and faithfulness and holiness and love and grace and mercy. Every divine perfection is held forth in Christ him we proclaim. That is why. And so is it any wonder that Paul simply says, we preach Christ. That is the message. Christian, do not ever be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. 
For this good news has everything to do with Christ, and every enduring hope for sinners is bound up in Christ. So we should speak of him often. We should tell of his goodness, where we're looking for opportunities to share of his promises, of his cross, of his resurrection, of his, of his coming return. The message is Christ. But Paul also says the message has a goal. There's a goal in what we're proclaiming. Lest we think mere decisions for Christ was Paul's aim. As if he were just looking to pack them in, get them converted, move on. He says plainly, that. That what? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. The message has a goal. Friends, our American infatuation with pragmatism, with results, with numbers, with life hacks, it has deluded us into believing that breadth is more important than depth and expansion is more important than stability. We believe it. And we love to have it so. Paul says we proclaim Christ to everyone in all nations so that everyone may be mature in Christ. The message has a goal, and the goal is maturity. Filling a stadium does not guarantee faithfulness. Planting 25 churches in five years does not necessarily equate to biblical faithfulness. Swelling attendance, growing membership, does not in itself equate to directly, necessarily, biblical faithfulness. The biblical metric for faithfulness and the goal of biblical ministry is stable maturity. Again, Ephesians 4, very helpful in illuminating the very things that Paul is speaking of. Maybe you're already thinking of Ephesians 4.11. How Christ has given gifts to the church, Apostles, prophets, shepherds, evangelists, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. But do you remember down below in verse 14? Why, Paul? So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. Equipped so that we would be mature. We proclaim Christ to present every man mature in Christ. Okay, Paul, well, how does this work? How does maturity come about? How does stabilized Christianity take root? Well, he says we do so by warning and teaching. What's warning sound like, Paul? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Be warned. Teaching. What's teaching sound like, Paul? 
Well, for in part, Brother John takes it up. 1 John 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we've made him a liar. His word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but the whole world. Warning. Teaching. For maturity. With all wisdom. He says, not natural or earthly wisdom, but spiritual and heavenly wisdom from above. The whole gospel of Christ, the whole counsel of God. He's thinking of the wisdom of God and all the various branches of it, teaching us to believe in Christ for salvation. Yes, lay hold of him for for salvation. Lay hold of him for justification to deal with his blood for your pardon and his sacrifice, the atonement for your sins, to observe all the things that are given to us and commanded by Christ to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Yeah, this message has a goal. And making disciples is most certainly, verse 29, a costly work. It's agonizing, Paul says. Struggling. It's costly work. It's often inconvenient work. It's often discouraging work. But it's a work, Paul says, that's done in all the energy of God that powerfully works within us. As an apostle... Paul could certainly say what it means to agonize or struggle for the good of others' spiritual maturity. And while his ministry was most certainly unique, the principle remains true for us today. Spiritual maturity is costly. To be a Christian involves taking an interest in the spiritual maturity of other Christians. If you do not see that, you have missed a major foundational stone of Christ's teaching. And you perhaps dangerously, to your own hurt and to the benefit of others, have missed something so essential for what it means for you to follow Christ. Because according to Jesus, and all the authority that he has, he has directed his followers Not simply to go into all the nations, but in part of that is to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Following Jesus, according to his design, means helping others follow him. That we're taking an interest in the spiritual maturity of other Christians. That is foundational, very ground level, introductory, elementary understanding of Christianity. But we also have to recognize that in our individualized, Western, often selfish, me-first context, this gets a little less airplay. To be a Christian means taking an interest in the spiritual maturity of others. 
Sometimes will look like the cost of time. Sometimes it will look physically like the cost of money. Sometimes it will look like the cost of energy. Most often, patience as we bear with one another in love. This happens in homes as mothers and fathers are seeking to raise their children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. This most certainly and explicitly, the emphasis of Scripture is that it's happening within the church. That the primary maturing that we need as parents, that we need as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we need as workers in this particular economy is to be matured. And that that maturing comes through the local church. If God's means to strengthen you and mature you spiritually comes through the word of God ministered to you in the church of God, are you ordering your life in such a way that you're positioned to grow? Do you speak about spiritual matters when you sit down to lunch? When you sit in the backyard together? When you text back and forth with fellow church members? How might you organize your week to prioritize the spiritual health of others? What would that look like? What sort of changes could you make to prioritize the maturity and the health of other Christians? Days at the pool, lakeside, over the summer. Thank God we live where we live. And we can live where we live and seek the spiritual maturity of others? How much opportunity has been graciously given to us? Breakfasts before work, lunches during the week, hosting lunch after morning worship. Brothers and sisters, there is a a multitude of opportunities where we can insert even sometimes just passing moments to say, I want to intentionally seek your maturity. I care about your spiritual health. Could someone look at our week and say, for this they struggle. With all of God's energy that he powerfully works within them, they are toiling. They are struggling. Not just to proclaim the message, but to see that that message is proclaimed in such a way that it reaches its intended goal, the maturity of their brothers and sisters. The glorious news of Christ is so astounding that it is to be proclaimed with all diligence to all peoples, even if it involves costly, agonizing suffering. And what I find so encouraging is that the relationship between gospel labors and gospel affliction, it does not come, friends, by manipulation. It does not come by sheer grit or determination. Remember Paul's words. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. What this means is that we gladly endure. We even pursue the sort of life that is marked by inconvenience. Or, if you like the hymnody, many dangers, toils, and snares because of the surpassing worth of Christ. That's why we do so. Gospel suffering is gladly taken on when we consider the glorious news of the reconciliation of sinners. I gladly do this. I delight to to spend and be spent for your sake. Why, Paul? Let me tell you about Christ. Let me tell you about him. 
And when we understand who he is, and we rightly see who he is, we cannot but help, like the riptide at the ocean, to see this same gospel taken beyond where it's bearing fruit. Whether that be just across your breakfast table, whether that be across the conference table, or whether that be across the globe, it's the same desire for, given to me for you. May God answer our prayers to raise up more laborers, to send them out into his harvest, and may we be found as those who not only proclaim Christ, but we are profoundly captivated by Christ. Let's pray to those ends now. Father, we thank you for this glorious news of the gospel that's given to us in your Son and it's proclaimed in your word. Father, we pray that you would help us to see the glorious announcement of what it means to be those who were once hostile to now be reconciled through the death of the Son, the blood of his cross, that that news would so captivate us that it would fill us with great joy and that the outworking of that great joy would be to speak gladly, even to the point of inconvenience, or Lord, if you so will, suffering and affliction. Father, help us to be faithful gospel friends. Help us to be faithful gospel stewards. And we pray, Lord, that you would be so well pleased to cause your gospel to not only bear good fruit among us, but that you would send out your gospel from this place to wherever you would sovereignly see fit, and that it would bear much fruit to your name, even there. Amen.